So have you ever had one of those Jesus head-scratching moments? You know what I'm talking about? Where you hear him make a statement and you think to yourself in the moment, yes, of course, I agree. But later on, you turn around and you say, hold on, what did he just say? What did he actually mean? Well, let's see one of those moments in motion. The people today, they called you king. They think you are the Messiah. Who do you think I am? You are the son of God. What if he's not the one? We're risking our lives. For what? He has shown us his power. We must have faith in him. Don't be afraid. Trust in God. Trust in me also. You know the way to where I'm going. We don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? I am the way. The truth. And the life. I am the Alpha. And the Omega. The first. And the last. The beginning and the end. <laughs> My lord, I had been expecting death to come. <laughs> there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. I am making everything new. Grace of the Lord be with all God's people. Amen. So hello everyday people and welcome. My name's Emeka and I've just exposed you to some truths about Jesus. Well, let's explore them together. Let's talk about it. Well, our usual response to hearing truths about Jesus can usually spark in two ways. One, it can bring an emotive response and the other, it can merit some level of thought to pause and think about what he actually just said. Now, today what we're going to do is we're going to start and we're going to end with truths about Jesus. We're going to do that figuratively and literally. Hopefully by the end, we can say collectively together as a people, amen. Also, I'm gonna test Zach's ability to kind of zoom into my eyes and turn them into the earth as well. But ideally what I wanna do this morning, well today, is actually focus on the I am statement. If you didn't know, there are seven I am statements throughout the gospels. Um, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection, the life. I am the true vine. And the one we're going to focus on today is I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, what does that actually mean? 
And what does that actually mean for us today? Now, I know like you and like, like me, you'd love for Jesus just to kind of float down and tell us, I'm God. But he doesn't do that. He's way more subtle than we think. When Jesus uses these I am statements, he's actually pointing in that direction. Over the last few months, we've been looking at John's gospel, and I've been really kind of taking a lot of pleasure in it, especially in the ingredients he uses in his writing. He actually starts with looking at what Jesus did. He looked at what Jesus says, so the discourse and dialogue, and then he looks at the responses to how, well, how people responded to what had just been said. Well, I'm gonna, we're going to do that today together. We're going to keep it simple. We're going to look at what Jesus did. We're going to look at what he said. And we're going to respond based on what he said together. Now, our passage that we're going to look at is John 14, verse 1 to 11. I'm going to get Zach to read that out for us. And then I'll come back and then we'll weave our way through so we can uh, look at those head-scratching moments together. So let's read these verses from John 14, verse 1 to 11. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Thanks, Zach, for that. Exactly where you are with God right now, that's a good place for us to start. That's what Jesus does here with Philip. He opened, in the opening verses, he actually talks quite openly with him. He says, don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Now, he starts slow, but he builds on that. He starts talking about heaven, as in he starts talking about his father's house has many rooms. In the Greek, the translation for that is dwelling place. So in my, in my mind right now, I don't have like a three-bedroom, you know, small box room in a three-bedroom house. It's not a humble brag. But Jesus is telling us, he's letting us know that there is a place for him and for us in heaven. I know we have the benefit of hindsight. So we know, we can decipher what Jesus was saying to his disciples here. But what we don't know is in the previous chapter, in, verse, in chapter 13, twice in verse 33 and 37, he says to his disciples, where I'm going, you can't come. Hence the trepidation in verse 1, don't let your hearts be troubled. Jesus then unpacks that. He tells him where he's going, 
He says, I'm going to my father's house. He's going to heaven. And he tells him exactly what he's going to be doing. I'm going to prepare a place for you. But he finishes with a challenge. In verse 4, he tells us, you know the way to the place where I'm going. So should we. Let me just say this up front. It's okay to have doubts about God. The best thing you can do with your doubts is actually pursue them. Pursue God, explore him, explore aspects of his character, explore his deeds, explore his people, ask questions. By following this pattern, what you're doing is you're forming an opinion and you have people around you to weigh it. A good place to do this is actually an alpha course. And if you've been on an alpha course before, why not serve on one? But with this pattern, what it'll do is it'll make you read the Bible more naturally because you want to know more about what God has said. And eventually, it'll lead you to a point of conviction. The Bible is very good at that. The reason why it does this is because it makes you face yourself. It challenges your thinking. And eventually, just like if we were on a dartboard, you're working your way to the middle. In the middle, you reach a point of absolution, as in you're secure in what you think, you're secure in who you are, and you're secure about what God thinks about you, and on a wide range of topics. The worst thing you can do with your doubts and questions is actually ignore them. But even worse is to ignore the call of God on your life. But let me be honest with you. Writing this message has not been easy for me. Mainly because I've been doing what we're talking about. I've been listening to Jesus, hearing him, spending time with him, reading the Bible. And what that has done is made me face myself. It's made me having to put aside my wants and some of the distractions, probably like my phone. But it's a reminder to die to self. That is exactly where Jesus is going next. He's going to the cross. And that's why in verse 4 he's saying, that's the way I'm going. You know the way to where I'm going. And we're called to do exactly the same thing. This brings me to a point where you know, dying to self is not something that comes easy. I remember being a young person at the Young People's Weekend Away. That's something, if you ever get the chance to go away as a church or go with friends away to pray and focus on God, take advantage of it. It's great. So I got to do this. We, got, we went away. We were in this room, and we're praying. We're meant to be seeking God. I know I've thrown in my caveat. I was a young Christian, so bear that in mind. So we're meant to be seeking God. I remember the exact exercise. We're meant to be seeking God about what he wants to do through us as individuals. Now, I don't know about you, but I get distracted a lot. In my head, I remember exactly what I was thinking at that point in time. I was thinking, I kind of want to just go and have fun. I want to go and play football. There's you know, grass outside. I want to go show people what I can do. But I should qualify this. Throughout my teenage years, what I wanted to do is find something that made me feel good, made me feel competent. I can, I can do this. People can know me for this. And therefore, football came a bit of a thing for me. If you'd ask me at the time, I'd say I play every so often. But if you ask any of my friends, they'd say, this guy plays every day. If he's not playing, he's thinking about it, he's dreaming about it, he's obsessed. It's interesting how the things that we like the most, if, we don't, if we're not careful, these things turn into obsessions. Now, I felt a call from God at that point in time. He called me to die to football. I need to put this huge thing in my life down to pick him up. Are there any barriers in your life that's preventing you from experiencing Jesus to the full right now? 
I mean, for me at that time, I just remember praying out loud, Jesus, I die to football. Nothing comes before you. And I remember my inner self screaming, hold on, hold on, wait a minute. Do you even know what you're giving up? And my answer back then, and even still to this very day is, I surrender anything in my life that hinders me from my pursuit of God. How about you? Now, let's read on. Let's look at verse 5 onwards. It says, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. Fair question. So how do we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Now, this is a fair question for us to ask. Jesus is saying he is the way, but the way to where? Where is he going? Jesus is the only way to the Father. I know to some ears that may sound intolerant. You may be thinking, hold on, there should be more ways to God. I mean, there's other world religions, aren't there? But Christianity is exclusive because it's the only one that says to access the Father, you need to go through the Son. This this claim, this Old Testament claim, is actually rooted in Old Testament symbolism. The Old Testament believer would actually look forward to a savior. They knew they weren't good enough. They would look forward to Jesus. There are people like Abraham in the Old Testament. When he looked forward to a savior, that was counted towards him as righteousness. That means he could stand upright before God. Isn't that amazing? And we know in Exodus 26, verse 33, that there was a curtain, basically. In the, behind the curtain was separating the holy place from the most holy place. It's actually where the Ark of the Covenant was kept and where God's presence was. So in order to spend time with God, you needed to be the high Levitical priest. He was the only one that could go into the holy of holy places. Now, if you want to know more about this, it's written in Leviticus 16. It's such a really interesting read, but I'll give us a brief summary. So you've got this individual. He's called out. Um, he's wearing a special garment. So he's wearing a sacred tunic, and it even says he's wearing like, special undergarments, or underpants as well. Read it for yourself, Leviticus 16. Um, and he has to bathe himself with water. So the idea is that you need to be made holy to be in God's presence because he is holy. Now, what's he doing there? So he's basically going in with a bull and he offers a sin offering. Then he goes in with a goat and offers a burnt offering. So there's fire there as well. And this is all for the atonement of sin. This is atonement for his sin, his family's sin, his household, and also for his nation. Notice, God has a bit of a pattern of operating here. He usually selects an individual and has that individual represent a whole nation. He does this later on with Aaron. This is Moses' brother. He calls him out. He has him represent Israel as he goes into God's sanctuary. Now, what happens when you think to yourself, well, do you know what? I don't want to do this. I don't want to follow God's prescribed method of accessing him. I want to do it my own way. I, I think I can just balance it all up. I do a few good deeds. I do a few bad deeds, and I'll meet somewhere in the middle. Now, just bear in mind, you're not the only person to actually think like this. The strange thing is, you think about it, Aaron's sons, Nahab and Abihu, have that same thought. They've probably heard what their dad does in the Holy of Holies. And what they do is they go and they provide a, an unauthorized sacrifice, an unauthorized fire. And it doesn't end well for them. They're completely burnt up. 
because it's a reminder that God is holy. Now, for those of you who decide, you know what, I, I, I don't believe and I don't trust God, you already stand before him condemned because of your sin, but also because you don't trust his solution for dealing with sin and guilt. Jesus is the only one that atones for sin. So any genuine, sincere person following any of the world religions cannot inherit the kingdom of God, no matter what you do. Matthew 7, verse 13 to 14 helps us out a little bit here. It tells us, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Jesus is the only way to God. He alone gives us access to the Father. But let's read on. We're at verse 8. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? We've had a look at the way. What is the truth about Jesus? Now, let me just start at the very top by saying Jesus is totally unique. He's the only one that fulfills Old Testament teaching. And we saw earlier in John's Gospel, in the first early verses, that Jesus is the Word of God that becomes flesh. He is God and he becomes flesh. That is the most interesting and exciting thing in all of human history. Just think about it. An all-seeing, all-powerful, all-knowing Son of God comes in the form of a man. And not only is he in the form of a man, when he's here, he's fully God and fully man. He is totally unique. Now, there are some Old Testament links here. Jesus dwells amongst his people. Now, because of that, remember we were talking about the curtain. That means now God the Father can dwell in us and through us because of Jesus. Now, if you're thinking, wait, wait, how does that work? The Old Testament link here is... Previously, God was like behind the curtain. So you had the, tam the temple and the tabernacle and God's presence was there. It was tucked there. If you wanted to spend time with God's presence, that's where he was. Now, because of the Holy Spirit, Jesus makes us into his temple. That is through the church and through our bodies. We have actually helpful statements that helps us actually explain this or helps us remember this. When you say, my body is a temple, that's what you're pointing to. It actually brings me to a, a conversation that I got pulled into with a group of friends. Now, admittedly, I'm a bit embarrassed about this, but we got, we got pulled into a conversation about making money through OnlyFans. I didn't want to be in this type of conversation because I knew the next words that could come out of my mouth could be really judgmental and I could probably lose the crowd here. And I just remember the Holy Spirit bubbling inside me. It was raging. It wanted to say something. And I just remember it just reminding me, your body is a temple. And the Holy Spirit doesn't take advantage of others for the sake of money. Not all money is good money. And I just remember just relaxing in the moment, knowing that the Holy Spirit just wanted to speak the truth in love. Now, if you're like me, sometimes you get into those kind of conversations, you're not quite sure what to say. Just remember, in those sensitive matters and these 
quiet moments, follow the call of the Holy Spirit. He will guide you in all matters. Now, let's ask the question, what is the life that Jesus is talking about? We've, took at, we've looked at the way, we've looked at the truth. Now, what is the life part? Now, Jesus alone is the life. He fulfills Old Testament promises that life is actually only given by God. Now, I think one of the other I am statements would help, help us out a little bit here. So where it says Jesus is the life, the resurrection and the life, it isn't that the resurrection is something he just says or something that he's going to just bring or something he's going to do. He is the resurrection and the life. If I was going to turn this into some type of equation, I'd say the resurrection from the dead plus an eternal life with God the Father, in order to have those two things, you have to have a relationship with Jesus. A call to believe in Jesus isn't just a call in the wind. It's a call to put your personal trust in him and who he is and what he has done. Right now, this aspect is actually impacting my life in quite a significant way, especially around giving, I would say. I mean, I'm an only child, so I'm used to kind of always having my own things. But I didn't realize, but over the years, even as a teenager, that kind of just kept going with me. So I would go into school, and we live near a sweet shop, so I usually have a pound or so, and I'd buy some sweets or some chocolate. And I would probably be the one that's hiding the chocolate in his pockets, even if it's melted. I just didn't want to share it. I'd be trying to sneak it into my pockets. I'm sure my friends all knew. But that just gave me an idea of kind of the, the way my thinking is going. I tend to ring fence things and try to hoard them and keep them to myself. That is my default, if you want to call it anything. Now, I just really felt, given that, we're, that there's a lot of talk in the UK about the cost of living crisis, and I just really feel the Holy Spirit is cultivating a spirit, an attitude of giving in my heart rather than one of hoarding. Now, it actually it showed itself quite clearly when we're budgeting. Normally, we sit down as a family and look at kind of where our money is going. And given the cost of living crisis is ringing in our ears, we're, you know, natural default is to actually hold back more money and, and see where we can just save as much and keep as much to ourselves. And more as an act of worship to God, we've said, no, we're going to increase our giving to the church. We're going to give more away rather than keep for ourselves. If you're in a position like that, really do think about it. But we're also looking at other ways to give. It isn't just financially. You can give your time. You can give your treasure. You can bless other people around you. And if you're in a position where you really need help, ask. Don't keep it to yourself. It really has challenged me to the point where it makes me ask the question, what does your giving habits say about your relationship with Jesus today? Just something for you to think about. But let's read on. We're at verse 10 if you're following. It says, the word, the word I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it's the Father. It's the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the work themselves. Now, where is the authority coming from when Jesus is speaking to us? Well, we just saw in the verse I just read, it comes directly from the Father, but also from Jesus himself. Remember, we said he is unique. And for those of you who are thinking, do you know what? I won't believe until I see God for myself. I need to see my very own eyes. 
Just bear in mind, you're not alone in that request. The eagle-eyed individual would have picked up on that in verse 8 to 11, where Philip makes that same request. But I'd say, bear in mind, no one has ever seen God face to face and lived to tell the tale. Some have experienced, vision, like, experienced God in a partial way, you can call it. Well, Moses said he wanted to see God's glory, and he got to see his back, which is something. Isaiah too got to see a vision of God. That vision, it's not bad. But Jesus is a greater fulfillment of all these limited visions of God or bits of God in the Old Testament. It's still in keeping with the, with the scripture in the Old Testament teaching that nobody has seen God face to face and lived to tell the tale. Yet he makes this incredible assertion that when you see him, you see the Father. This is him pointing to his divinity. Now, Philip, by asking this question, showed that he didn't really understand the point of why Jesus came. It's so we can see the Father. When you spend time with Jesus, you get to see God. Now, what's the point of all this? Why do, what is all this seeing God and all this? There is coming a time where we get to see God face to face. God has redeemed his people for that exact purpose. It's one of the great blessings in the age to come. When he looks upon his people, he'll look upon them with favor and delight. So when he sees you and I, he won't see, uh, yuck, move to the side. He'll look upon us with favor and delight. What I have in mind here is that when you've got something holy coming into contact with something unholy, we saw with Nahab and Abihu, something had to go. Those two cannot come together. I mean, I, I go back to my chemistry classes at school where you take a group one element like cesium and you put it in a bowl of water. And even in the experiment, you see the scientist, he sprints in the opposite direction because something's, something's going to go. There's an explosion, there's an eruption. That bowl or glass will explode. But that's not what's happening here. What's happening here is something holy is coming in contact with something holy. And that's because of sanctification. That is the process by which something unholy becomes holy. And that is through Jesus and through the Holy Spirit. Now, it is a call for us to see Jesus exactly as he is. He says, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. He's pointing us towards the Trinity. That the, that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are distinct individual people here, but together they are in one being. Now, if you're struggling with the theory here, then focus on the practical. Jesus even helps us out. He says, pointing, he points us to the evidence of the works themselves. Now, we've been looking throughout the Gospels of John, and we've seen miracles, we've seen teachings. It even has impact to this point today. If you speak to people, they'll say, Jesus had an impact on my life now. John's writing and pointing us in the direction of Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And the whole point about us talking about him is because he wants to take you from an unbeliever to a point of faith. Now, if you are at a point of faith and you think, what do I do with this? What do I do? What do I do next? Well, Jesus is also teaching his disciples, imitate me, be like me, live the life I lived, have the ministry I had. If that just made a shudder go down your spine, then you're right. Because you should be picking up on the fact that I said, Jesus is unique. I'm calling you to be unique. Like, how do I do that? How do I become like Jesus? How do I become unique? 
Well, this is one thing I really love about how this is laid out. Jesus is going to the Father so he can release the power of the Holy Spirit. So we can live the lives he's called us to. We don't have to do it. He does it for us. The only thing that we need to do, we must be ready to give up our lives for the sake of others, just like he did. Matthew 16 verse 25 tells us that for whoever saves his life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Now in closing, our challenge today is straightforward. Do you believe in Jesus? Are you ready to move beyond this concept of God, as in what or who, to actually know he's in the person of Jesus? God's house has many rooms and your name is on the door. Jesus has made a place for you, for me. Everything you've ever wanted or needed in this world, everything that's been taken away from you, just surrender it at the cross. Put it before Jesus. Acknowledge the things that are separating you from him right now. May it be sin, may it be shame, unforgiveness, hurt, doubt, loss, frustration. Lay it at his feet. Lay it at the cross. Accept that his death and resurrection, that his plan for this world is enough. He is in control. And from this day forward, commit to following him because he is the way, the truth, and the life. Amen.